I want to give you two uh, newspaper articles that I read uh, about our theme. And what's our theme? Living with hope in the uh, living with hope in the light of His coming. Thank you. Uh, I think I wanted to focus on the word hope. And there's two articles that I read. One was from Washington Post, and um, the article said on why he wanted to become a president. This was about George Bush, the senior. And as he was campaigning for his presidency, he began to speak and share about faith stories and of the glimmers of faith that broke through atheistic, self-imposed uh, godlessness. That's, that's the uh, title. So in one of the stories, he speaks about the time when he had gone to Brezhnev's funeral. Brezhnev was the president in the USSR, if you remember. And at the funeral, um, as his wife stood next to the casket, and just as the soldiers were about to close the casket, uh, Brezhnev's wife, in what would be considered a civil act of disobedience, she bends forward and makes a sign of the cross over the casket. Now, you must understand, this has been years and years of atheism where they're trying to blot out the very memory of God. And at that very moment, there was this indication that Brezhnev's wife was hoping that there is something beyond this death. I think that uh, in that boldness of civic disobedience, she was demonstrating a hope that could not be killed. A hope that still, you know, still lay in the hearts of some people. The second one was uh, from Guardian. And this uh, says depression, which is linked to hopelessness, is the second greatest cause of death after heart disease in affluent Europe and America, according to figures from the World Health Organization. See, hope needs to be nurtured. It needs to be protected because, you know, there are things that we've hoped. All of us, we've had hopes. Uh, some of us, when we were kids, we wanted to, we had hoped that we'd become a, um, I don't know, a, a, I don't know, astronaut. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I wanted to be an astronaut. I just turned out to be a nut. That's all. Forget <laughs> But, you see, many of these hopes that we have, they, they never survived. Uh, hope needs to be nurtured and protected. And, and so what Paul is going to try and do is in verse 5, it says, For this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put in order what remained. So putting in order what remained. Now, the putting in order is like a medical term, like a bone that is broken that needs to be put together. Why? Because if church, wherever the church is placed in the city, if church is going to be the, the citadel of hope, we want to nurture hope by making sure the city is functioning, sorry, the church is functioning well, that it's in order. So what he does is he's going to give us, um, he's going to give us five things that he wants to set in order. And what we will do is try and cover the three in this session, which is appoint, 
apprehend and affirm, or we'll come back for the apprentice and apply, God willing, tomorrow morning. But the, the title of today's session, this session, is Sound Doctrine as a Church's Strategy. Sound Doctrine. We'll, we'll see what is sound doctrine and why it's the church's strategy. And sometimes we think, you know, we were talking, somebody, I, I think I was talking to Joby, I could be wrong who I was talking to, um, but uh, we were talking about fellowship. You know, we just think that fellowship, fellowship is what? Just hanging around, having a cup of coffee, and we call it fellowship. No, fellowship is more than that. It's intentional so that we can gear our thoughts and our minds in, in bringing it to focus as to how can I be what God intends me to be or him to be or her to be and that how uh, 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 iron sharpens iron coming together so that we can do what God wants us to be, not just have a cup of coffee and not just have a good evening or whatever. That's, that's uh, uh, in a country club meeting. But this is more than that as a strategy. What do we do? So I'm, I'm going to read from Titus chapter 1, verses 5, to chapter 2, verse 1. And if you will be kind enough to please stand up as we read God's word. This is God's word that I want to read. So if you will please stand up and read along. If you want to read aloud, that's great. That's okay. I'm all right with that. But read along with me so that we follow through what God is saying in his word. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is about reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is God's word. Father, as we look to, the, to this inspired word that you gave us, I pray that you would hide me behind the shadow of the cross. May your voice come through your spirit, 
loud and clear into our hearts. May it be, O oh, Father, may it be, Father, what we need to hear and how we need to hear. Only Your Spirit can do that. And I pray, O oh God, that You will be glorified through the hearing of Your Word and through the doing of Your Word and through the transformation of our lives, so that people are able to see that there is a God above who is worthy of all honor, all glory, all praise, because of our life and our response to what you have done for us. We thank you again. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. All right, what we got now is the first wine, which is a point. Okay, a point. And from verses 5 to 16, what you see is two kinds of leadership. Now, I said the first one, we looked at Godship. Now, we're going to look at leadership. And you might say, all right, this is time for the leaders to hear and the others can go to sleep. No. Right? Now, I'll tell you why. It's for the whole church. And, and so we need to know what is happening here. So stay awake. There are two kinds of leaders God's kind of leaders, which is verses 6 to 9, there's God's kind, God's kind of leader. And then verses 10 to 16, there's this world's kind of leader. World. The world's kind of leader. Now, I'm not going to go through the qualifications per se, what Paul is writing to Titus and saying, this is what leaders ought to be. I'm not going through that. But I'm going to give you three lessons that I learned uh, as... What God is saying that a leader ought to be. Okay, this first one then is God requires leaders put character before competence. Character before competence. We, 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 we like competence. We like people with gifts. We like people who, you know, if you can play the music, we can pastor the church. Uh, or if you, you know, if you're good at something, you're, you know, you, you think that is God's uh, way of showing that that person is the leader. But gifting is not necessarily that you've been spirit-filled. Character before competence. That's the idea here. Okay, because um, Cretans, again, going back to Cretans, they preferred success at all means. Somebody was asking, what do I mean about the Zeus kind of uh, worldview? Or what does that mean when you say, uh, don't be like the Zeus, but be like Jesus? Zeus is the kind of people who say, whatever it takes for success, by hook or by crook. And, 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 and as long as we have success. And we tend to do this in the companies. And the companies are not really bothered. They need to show to their shareholders that there has been success. Uh, they've made the money. Hook or by crook. Uh, so do you have this, the flip side or the, the totally opposite side, which is the Jesus kind of way. And, and that is what we are talking about. It. Not just getting work done uh, because this person is competent, this person is great, but that we look at competence, uh, sorry, character first. And so what Paul is really doing is ordering for us a stepladder. Well, I don't know how many of you have climbed such a ladder. Which side of the ladder can you climb on? The step side, not the other side, all right? Uh, so, but you can't, so if you think of the other side as character, 
and this side of competence, it's a good imagery to keep in mind because you can't climb on character, but you can't stand without character. You, you need character, but you can't climb on that. And so when Paul is writing to Titus, he's saying you've got to put an order. He is speaking about his competence to be able to get work done, but not at the cost of character. So we are not ones who are saying get the work done, but as ones who are saying work will get done as we are people of character. Okay, and so uh, these character traits, as you go through, you will see that they're quite specific. He could have just said, find people who are blameless. I know you're on Crete. Come on, uh, Titus, I understand. Don't be complaining that you can't get leaders. I know you wanted to have three churches, but not enough leaders. You see, we have a problem. We've got two elders. We've been praying for the past two years. Lord, give us leaders. This is This is real. The dearth of leadership and the limiting of the church is real. But Paul, when he writes to Titus, he does not compromise on the need of who a leader needs to be. He doesn't say, I understand you're on Crete, so let's just lower the standard a bit. He could have just said, just find somebody who is, you know, maybe acts holy, blameless, whatever. But he gets very specific. This is what character Ought to do an attitude, attitude of make do, want to do. In fact, we have we say this: we spend more time picking up our fruits and our vegetables than picking up elders. Isn't that sad? And so, Paul is very specific about who his leader should be in Crete. Um, I'm not sure if he knew about this. Oh, you probably know. I'm sorry if I use that phrase. McDonald pricing or the Big Mac index. Big Mac index is supposed to be that, you know, the pricing of Big Mac from McDonald's is to be based on the purchasing power, the parity of the country. So if it's got higher, if it's highly priced, that means you guys, you know, can pay more and, you know, that kind of a thing. He doesn't use a leadership purchasing parity kind of a thing, different for Crete or different for Bangalore and different from Toronto. The standards that God expects of God's people is the same. All right? And, and, and so, therefore, as we read this, um, and I, I believe that you guys have gone through this already or you've done these qualifications, you, you know, you, you, you will see that these are um, standards sometimes when you look at some of those and say, wow, this is, like, how do we even meet these standards? Right? And, and so, uh, keep, bear in mind, God's standards for leadership is high, And not that we are perfect people who need to be leaders, but God is looking for people with character before he equips them with competence. That is the core understanding of who a leader is. So stop looking for celebrity pastors or elders, or I know you've got a lot of celebrity elders here. We would like to borrow and steal some of you, but... But uh, God wants character as the main um, 
criteria for leadership. The second is. It does move, 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 move. No, okay. All right, thank you. So God demands leaders uphold both love and truth in leading. These are. Think of it as two guardrails. Okay, now I, I'm going to give you some leadership principles in this session, really, but as it's applicable even for us as parents, it's, you know, we all play a leadership role. If leadership is about influence, you are influencing people at all phases and all strata of, of your life, and so think of it as something which is applicable to you. So these are guardrails. You know, on the, on the highway, you have those rails on the two ends. You shouldn't be going on, on the two, two sides. So that is, that is what, it, what, what this is all about, to speak the truth and love, Ephesians 4.15. Now, uh, speaking the truth in love is not just a New Testament pattern. It's there in Zechariah 8.16. So it is God's universal principle to speak the truth in love. I want to read to you what William Gurnall, who was a Puritan preacher, he had to say this. He says, a minister without boldness is like a smooth file, a knife without an edge, a sentinel that is afraid to let off his gun, if men will be bold in sin, ministers must be bold to reprove. If men are bold to sin, ministers must be bold to reprove. You get that? If you are bold to sin, your elders, your leaders are called to be bold to reprove. If that's what this passage on leadership will remind us, and sometimes we think of elders, the, the concept of elders is to be strict and to restrict. The strictest person in the room gets to become the elder, right? Or he is, the strictness is considered to be holiness or restrict. You ask me anything, all I have to say is no. Can we play, can we sing an extra song? No. Can we have a retreat? No. And I feel good because I'm a good elder. Strict and restrict is not the point. It's not what makes an elder. You see, the, the point here is that we are people of character, men of character, and that we have a role to play. I want to put this quote by John Stott. Oops, I didn't put it, so that's okay. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I thought I had it. Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth, and our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. Use that principle anywhere. As a parent, very applicable. Sometimes as fathers, we are... We are confronted with this because the template that we have seen as that of our parents, maybe, who, whose only responsibility was to make sure that we don't make, make any noise. And, you know, we, we are, there's a strictness that comes with the father, and we follow that through without demonstrating love. And, and if our love grows soft, if it's not strengthened by the truth, then it's a problem. But if our truth grows hard, 
Uh, truth grows hard if it, is, if it is not softened by love. You see, love and truth coming together is a good leadership principle. In fact, it's the Titus principle. If you look down in verse 13, there's a rebuke that is happening. Okay, look at verse 13. What does it say? So why, why should they be rebuked? What is the principle there? So that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke is not to shut them up. Rebuke is not to throw them out of the church. Rebuke is not to, to make them feel small. Rebuke is not to shame them, not to guilt them. Rebuke is so that they can be sound in the faith. And such rebuke comes because there's been an investment of love. And so you rebuke. And we cannot do without rebuking. But we are called to. The God's leaders, um, strengthens leaders to serve in hope. Now, I want you to think about this because 2 Corinthians 2.16 tells us who is sufficient for these things. How can, uh, so uh, if, if you caught the introduction, I'm an elder at, at our chapel, at our assembly. My role, as I understand, is that I have to convince people I have to share the gospel in a way that it will convert the people. It will convince the people. But I'm saying I, I don't have the ability to convince or convert or, or do any of those. So, yet I'm called to do that. It's God who converts. It's God who, who convicts. And yet when I do this, when I'm called to do this work, what is happening is it is through being a tool in the hands of the Spirit of God. He is the one who does the conviction. He is the one who does the converting. He is the one who brings the change, but he brings it through me if I'm available for, to him to make the change. You see, and I, therefore, as leaders, we serve in hope. Your leaders serve in hope. You as parents, you serve in hope because as you've poured this truth and love into their lives, into the lives of your children, you're hoping that the Spirit of God will grab hold of their hearts before it's too late. Our prayer for our children, I know it's the prayer for you as your children, for your children, is that you don't lose a single one. We are not willing to give a single child to this world. No, we will not. We will stand as gods. Uh, we, we will stand with our, our force. But we recognize that we don't have the ability to convert our children. As parents, we do that. As elders, we're called to do that. As leaders, you're called to do that. You're called to do what you're not able to do because you do it in hope of the Spirit of God who strengthens you. What a joy to know that when you, your children grow up and they are fiercely in love with the God that you love, that when somebody says, you've done a good job of parenting, or when we see a church like this flowing with love for each other and discipleship and growing in the word, and somebody would say, you've got, uh, they, they would turn to the elders and say, you're doing such a fantastic job. Our response is in humility, saying that we want to be good stewards, faithful in little things, because it's God, it's God, it's God alone who does the work.
We water someone's plants, someone waters, but it's God who gives the what church? What does God do? He gives the what? He gives the increase. He is the one who makes it fruitful, not us. And so humility and hope is all combined together in this work that God calls us to do. But as we do this, we, 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 we have to apprehend, we have to stop, as it were. We have to stand. This false leaders must be stopped. Okay, now, I don't know how many of you um, watch, watch The Magnificent Seven. I, I like Westerns, okay? I'm going to confess in the church. I don't know if it's a confession of good or bad here, but uh, in The Magnificent Seven, there is this uh, false leader, the antagonist, the Calvira. He says, if God did not want them sheared, he would not have made them sheep. I think it's profound. We think the word sheep, therefore, sheep needs to be sheared, take advantage of them. That's what a false leader does. So how do we identify who these false leaders are? That's a blank. I must, uh, I must, confirm, uh, I must confess, uh, I haven't had time to review the slide. I just put it in. So therefore, when the question was asked in the earlier session, I looked at that question and I said, what did I write? I had, you were confused, but I was more confused. So... Excuse me if you don't see the slides in a proper, you know, logical uh, sense. But, but the question is this, right? In verses 14 to verse 16, what do you do or how do you recognize, what do you do with these leaders? Okay, so the first, oops, sorry, you got it there already. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, you recognize the leaders, these false leaders, verses 10 to 13. And how do you do that? You recognize them by their character, verse 10. They are insubordinate, they are empty talkers, and they are deceivers. I like that phrase, empty talkers. But look at also verse 16. They profess to know God, but, but they deny him by their works. That is how you recognize them. Empty talkers, they talk big, but there's nothing. Did you know the Chicago, Chicago is called the Windy City, right? Do you know why it's called the Windy City? The real reason is not because of the wind that comes out from the Great Lakes. It's because they were full of these politicians who had this oratory that they would just talk and all just be wind. Nothing, nothing beyond that. That's why it's called the Windy City. You look it up. It's on, it's on Wikipedia, which is, uh, you know, I think biblical truth. I don't know what it is, but... But look it up. Chicago, Windy City, because there are people who talk, but never, it never, you know, never act on it. Okay, empty talkers. And then verse 11, it says, verse 11, it says, how do you, you recognize them by their tactics? The tactics. You, they're upsetting whole families. Verse 14, they're interested in the commands of people than in the commands of God. That is how you recognize them, by their tactics. Recognize them by their motivation, verse 11, which says, for self-gain. They are men-pleasers, then God-pleasers. 
Verse 13 to 16, so what do you do as a result is you rebuke these false leaders. Verse 11 said they must be silenced. You see, the, the reason I'm coming to this is when you know the right doctrine, it means that you will not stand for wrong teaching. You get that? That's your line for today. You can leave if you want. But this is what it is. If you know your sound doctrine, you will not stand for false teaching. But if you don't know your sound doctrine, if you don't know what the Bible is saying, how do you know the difference? And so it's important that uh, the idea of sound doctrine as a strategy, because uh, C.S. Lewis had this to say. He said, of all the bad men... Bad men who are religious are the worst. Right? They act religious, but if they are bad, if they're not good, then they are bad. So what are, what are you supposed to do? Again, we saw that in verse 13. You're rebuking them so that they'd be sound in faith. It's, to, it's this building up, this idea of restoration. So rebuke, therefore, is not bad. You, you, will, you, know, you as parents rebuke your children, and you will say that that is good for the child. So why do you not allow your elder to rebuke you in love for, good, for, for the good as a flock, but also when you see if there is a false leader who, as we saw, you can recognize them by their attitude, by their motivation, by their tactic. They must be silenced. So what will happen is you as a church are being built with sound doctrine. And we want people to come in, right? And people will come in. They want to see this. Oh, this is such good sheep. I, want, I can have them shared. And in walks the false uh, leader. You got to recognize what kind of people will come in if they are sheep who are in need, we care for them. A church is meant to be a hospital for the wounded. And it will be. But we will take up our arms against a false leader who comes to devour the wolf, like a wolf, to devour the sheep. But you can only do that if you know your doctrine, if you know your, if God's word. Okay, and so, therefore, what you have to do is you have to affirm, affirm verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, what accords with sound doctrine? Teach what is sound doctrine. And I want to spend just a little time here as to why sound doctrine is important. What does sound doctrine do? Why sound doctrine? Okay. It avoids the pitfalls of legalism and liberalism. The two ends. I was was, uh, traveling to Wynard in Kerala some years ago, and I loved the scene, but you know what? The danger of that road, on one side is the cliff, and you can't go that end, but on the other side are these... um, uh, one side is a cliff and the other side is a ravine, but between the cliff and the road, the road actually falls about, about a foot or so. So even before you hit the edge of a ravine, your wheel can get stuck or you can, you, your truck and your car can fall off. So you've got to be in the middle of the, or, you know, in, in, in the road. You can't be on two ends. Now, I must tell you a story that my 
my mom taught me my uh, most of my life lessons or discipleship was through lessons uh, were through stories that she told me in this particular one there was this rich man who wanted a driver so he put out an ad and he called out for the best driver that there was and so a race driver came in he applied for it and this guy's house was on the top of the mountain and he had to go to the office which is at the at the bottom of the hill and so this race driver made sure that he came down like in a minute and the the driver said how was the driving i says oh, that was great thank you and then another guy came who who had applied was a stunt driver the stunt driver went one inch close to the edge of the ravine and one inch close to the edge of the uh, you know the cliff and then he would weave in and out and he was like a stunt driver that was exciting we pay good money for roller coaster and this was a good opportunity to be in the car and he gets there at the end he says like how was my driving so that was great and then the third guy he was just a driver he made sure that he was in the center center of the office lane and he got the guy at the bottom of the hill and who do you think got the job the third guy right and so that my mom asked me who do you think should get the driver i was the guy with the race driver type and i was like i want to get down as quickly as possible but the life lesson was you got to be if you got to live long you got to be safe and you got to be sure that you're on the center of the lane the truth often is not on the extremes but as i grew older i began to realize there was something else that i was missing about this um about this uh, understanding of what uh the truth is okay and so so we we tend to say that christianity is not so we try to understand liberalism and legalism okay so so about liberalism we tend to say christianity is not about law and it's about relationship right have you heard that have you heard of that phrase uh it's not about law it's about relationship but think about this i'm in a relationship with my wife am i under an expectation of a law while i'm here or can i do what i want no relationship can survive without this law that's expected of what a relationship ought to be i i i'm limited do, do, do you understand what i'm saying so when you say you're you're a christian you're not under the law because you this is about relationship we cannot we are not saying that we have nothing to do with the law we have we are not limited in any sense we are because the very definition of relationship puts us into certain expectation which is what law is right and so uh 1 john chapter 3 verse 4 says sin, uh, sin is lawlessness so if you are going to be lawless then it is sin uh, so we we are not in this end of this liberalism which says okay i've got nothing to do with the law nor are we on the other end of legalism that everything if i do in a systematic way that if i do if i've put the alarm on and don't press news i'm so disciplined that as soon as the phone rings the only thing i reach out to is not my smartphone how many of you do that when you wake up how many of you reach for the smartphone don't raise your hand you'll you'll hurt yourself 
right? But we all tend to do. The first thing we tend to do is reach for the smartphone. We are so desperate to see if somebody called us, somebody liked us, somebody unfollowed us. I don't know what you're looking for, but... So you, 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 you're disciplined. You're saying that, no, 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 no. I'm not going to reach for the smartphone. I'm going to reach for my Bible for the first 60 minutes. When I open my eyes, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray. You know, you've got this regimen going on. And you think God should be so excited about you that he has crowned you. I don't know what the, the greatest human son or I don't know what title that you want. You, you think that is what, that is what is expected? You know, if, if you're going back into what the Pharisees were doing, that through these acts that he would please God, then you are doing works-based salvation. That is not what is expected. What is expected is the fact that because you love God, you're saying, listen, I've got, I've got nothing in this world that excites me more. and I want to spend time. It's the other way. You, you're entering through the wrong door. If you put your disciplines before your desire for the Lord, right? So we are not legalist, neither are we um, liberalist. But then, but then there is also this um, this point of you know how do we um, how do we how do we proceed with uh, some of the issues. Now, really, if you think about this, we, I, I called it the single issue mantra. Okay? Um, again, I, I'm going to use the U.S. examples only because it, it's, it's so evident. They believe, some of them believe that if you're a Democrat, you cannot be a Christian. Right? And so there are churches where there are only Democrats who go, and there are churches where only the Republicans go. And then there is a church called the Purple Church, where they have agreed that, you know, Democrats and Republicans can come, but I think Democrats sit on one side of the aisle and the rep- Republicans on the other. I don't know how. But the single issue that you either are about, you are either pro-life or you are for immigration. You cannot have this, you know, you, you, you have to choose between the two. causes that can divide, or that we'll be cloistered, or that, that we won't be, that we'll be cloistered. I mean, there are churches that have got nothing to do with this world. It's really messing me up, so I'm going to just, you know, insulate myself and my family. Or then it's about conformity. You know, unless we are, you know, go and, and interact with them and be with them and be like them, we cannot influence them for the gospel. There's two extremes that we hold, have some truth, but we are holding them for the wrong reason. We need to be cloistered from sin, and we, but we're not cloistered from the people. We, we are to influence the people and not be like them. So we are conformed to Christ, not conformed to the world. And so in understanding what, what is the right thing for me to do, how do I respond right, that brings you to the Word of God. Unless you know the Word of God, you will not know what to do, how to do, how to react. You see, it's the Word of God. The, 
The another, I want to give you another reason, another example of how there are truths in both ends that we need to understand. So, so when you say pro-life and immigration, we are about both, right? It's not either or. I'll give you an example of uh, our Lord Jesus. He told the Pharisees that, um, who had said that they had come up with this law saying that if you have committed this money for the Lord, this korban that you have, you, uh, you don't have to care for your parents. It's okay. Don't care for your parents because this money is given to the Lord. Okay, and that's what the Pharisees taught. And the Lord also taught saying that um, you got to love me preeminently. You got to love me more than more than your parents. So the Lord actually um, uh, he uh, what does he do against the Pharisees? He rebukes them for teaching to not care for the parents. At the same time, he is saying that you don't love your parents more than me. So, like, is that is that contradictory? Is that Are you with me? Do you understand this example? Right? At the same time, Jesus is saying about this parents don't, you know, he's rebuking the parents, uh, rebuking the Pharisees for not uh, not taking care of the parents. At the same time, he's saying, you know, don't be so caught up with your parents that you forget me. Can both the truths be held together? Yes. That's right. You see? It is not that you say, oh, I love my God so much that I don't care for anybody, including my parents. No, you have a responsibility. Or don't say that it's all about my parents and I have to care for them that you forget God. No, you have to bring them both. You see, so when people start talking about extremes, there is this discernment that needs to come in. And that comes in as we spend time in the word. Spending time in God's word. We are living in this, you know, in the tension, in the tension. So let me make some applications with this. Okay, one is uh, we are to lead. Lead with conviction, clarity, and courage. Look at verse 9. This is, this is good. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as, ta- as taught. This is about leadership conviction and applies to all of us again, that we know what is being taught. We know the word of God. This is leadership conviction so that he is able to give instruction and sound doctrine. This is leadership clarity to be able to explain what is it that God is saying about his word, to be able to communicate this. So there is leadership clarity. There's leadership conviction. There's leadership clarity. And then the third part is also to rebuke those who contradicted leadership courage. Leadership conviction, leadership clarity, leadership courage. You take that principle, apply it to any of your leadership roles that you play as a father, as a mother, as an older brother, as an older sister, as even a boss in your work, these three become quite applicable. Knowing what they're supposed to do, communicating what they're supposed to do, and rebuking those who don't. And it starts at the church. You see how church is a good place where this can be demonstrated too. 
right? Holding fast to sound doctrine. The, um, the other thing, uh, the other verse that we saw about sound doctrine is in verse 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So you lead. The second is feed. I'm not sure whether I have that. Yes, feed. Feed with care, guarding, and warding. You've heard of this expression, sheep are what they eat. Sheep are what they eat. Have you watched Ratatouille? Okay, let's see if I got that. I'm not sure whether you remember that scene. If you are what you eat, then I only want to eat the good stuff. I only want to eat the good stuff. My brothers, my sisters. I think Remy is a good theologian. Because I tell you, we consume hours on YouTube videos, on Facebook and Instagram and all of those. We feed on things that look like food, but they lead, they're not food. They look like food, but they're rotten food that leads to food poisoning. One of the reasons why we are who we might be, and you, you, you ask this question to yourself, or why churches are why they are, you can ask this as a church. I don't, I, I'm saying this as a general principle. I'm, this is not accusatory. But if it is real, then it's a rebuke. That, that we would say, if we, are who, if we are what we eat, then I want to eat only the good stuff. The... Love for the sound doctrine, love for good teaching, love for God's word, the excitement that comes as you hear God's word, that you would say, ah, I sunk my teeth on this word of God, and it's just so beautiful. I just love it. Falling in love with God as you fall in love with his word. Because then, all of these things that we read about, about these false teachers. You, you can guard against them because food is your spiritual milk. Food is me. I mean, I'm sorry, the word is spiritual milk. Uh, the word is milk. It does not need additives. It does not need enrichment. It is good as is. That we are not ones who are about rotten food. We somehow liked, like junk food, but false teaching is not junk food. It is spoiled food. It's rotten food. There's a mother who wants, wanted to feed her, her family good food, and so she would cook in advance, and, or, and she would say, okay, what do you want for lunch? And one would say, whatever, mom. And the other would say, you know... Okay, anything, anything. Or uh, they would turn to the mom and say, some of the thing would be uh, like, you know, she, she, it would be, 
I don't know, I don't care. Something food, just give me food. And she would have made, you know, different kinds of meat and different things. And, and, uh, and they would be just saying, just give me whatever. So what she did is she would cook them and started labeling them whatever. Anything. I don't care. I don't know. Right? Just give me food, something good. And so she would ask, what do you want? Whatever. So she would go find whatever and serve it. It's okay with food, but it's not okay with God's word. That we will desire God's word just like a child deserves or desires milk. See, when the child cries, the only thing that the child needs is milk. That's the desire. May that desire be ours because it's the word of God that's going to keep the hope of God, hope of eternal life alive in your heart. It's because of this word that we have this joy that, that uh, uh, as I'm going to read verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. We'll, as we continue on, we will see each of those parts in a beautiful way because this, as... Um, Martin Luther would say, I think there are 46 verses, and he says this is one of the greatest epistles that he enjoyed. And so may that, may, as we speak about God's word, as we go through Titus, may this come with clarity. I know we don't have much time, and I didn't realize I spoke so much, but um, the questions that I would have want us to discuss is if you were to swerve from sound doctrine, if you were to go to the two ends, legalism and lawlessness, what is your tendency to go towards? To become more legalistic? To some of you who have, have grown up in a very legalistic church and so you, you, you don't want to go there but somehow your wheel balancing is such that when you become parents you automatically swerve towards that because that's the template that you've got or you, you have this knee-jerk reaction and because you don't want there you swerve so much on the other side that you've fallen off, falling off the ravine on the other side. Which will it be? Liberalism or legalism? And you got to and understand that both don't work. And then ask yourself, what, what are some of the ways that I would learn sound doctrine and just how do I learn God's word? How do I ensure that I'm feeding on the right stuff? And then explain what kinds of behaviors are the outcomes of sound teaching. What happens? What's the result of sound teaching? How does that, how, do your, how will your life change as a result of sound teaching? So that's a question I want to leave with you. Uh, and I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just pray for you. 
uh, and then we'll close. Can I just have you all stand up as we pray? Father God, we, uh, we thank you that you have left, you have given us your inspired word. We recognize, Lord, oftentimes we haven't fully enjoyed your word, not because it's not enjoyable, but it's because we have other loves. We have enjoyed other things. We have filled our stomach with rotten food, and we are sick to, our, to the pit of our stomach, and probably, Lord, that we haven't uh, had this craving for good food. I pray, O oh God, this evening, this this late afternoon, as we as we hear from you that this sound doctrine is what keeps our hope alive. It's sound doctrine what you urge of us. It is sound doctrine that is good for our health, for the church, for the family, for the individual. I pray that you would give us clarity, that you would give us this desire, you would give us this this insistence that the food that we'll feed on will be the good food of God's word, that we will delve into it, we'll, we'll soak in it, we will marinate in it, we will, we, will, we will spend our time in it, Lord. And so I pray, not, not, with this, not with this idea that we want to prove ourselves to someone else, but just because we've enjoyed it, create in us, Lord, this love for your word, and that our children would see, in a church, our children would see that these are people who love God's word. It's not an act that they put up. They don't do, we don't come here, we, we as parents don't come here because our children will have other children to play with. Oh, that is okay, but that's not the end goal. The goal is that these children will grow up to love you and to fear you and to, to, to know this God of the universe who loves them so much. And that's our desire, oh Father, we pray, that we know comes through learning of your word. So we thank you again for a good reminder. Be glorified, O oh God, through the response of this hearing of your word. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated.